On October 24, 2015, Sue was with her daughter Jessica, who was 14 years old at the time, and her friend Elise. Sue and Elise were skydiving buddies, and they were doing what they often did on a beautiful Saturday morning. They were going to go jump out of a plane. Since she was 14, Jessica wasn't yet old enough to jump, but she just liked being with her mom and hanging out at the drop zone. The weather was beautiful. Everything was going fine until Sue got to about 5,000 feet. She tried to make a quick turn just before landing, and things went terribly wrong. Obviously, Sue made it through that ordeal, but to say she survived is a huge understatement. She came back stronger than ever. This is a flashback episode. Sue originally told her story on the podcast back in 2019. After you hear about her skydiving crash, I'll play a recent conversation I had with her about what's going on with her now. Spoiler alert, she's still doing some amazing things. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, I want to give people a little bit of background that uh, so they know we have known each other for years, literally, uh, in a variety of different contexts, too. Well, actually, a couple of different contexts. You and I are part of the ultra marathon community. Uh, we've both done 
long ultra marathons. Matter of fact, I think I, I actually interviewed you on a different podcast when you finished your first hundred miler. Was that right? You did. You did. Yeah, that's been a few years ago. And I know we've been, we see each other at races uh, fairly regularly. And we've also worked with the homeless. You have a heart for the homeless community like I do. And we've gone to places and given out food and blankets and stuff like that. And uh, I know we both enjoy doing stuff like that as well. We do. Thanks, Scott. And not only that, but you are a listener to this podcast, like from the first episode, I think, right? Yes, I love your podcasts, and I love podcasts in general. And now you have fulfilled your lifetime dream of coming on this show, right? (laughs) It was one of my bucket lists. (laughs) I am happy to help make that happen. (laughs) And I have to tell you this. I I don't think I've ever told you this before, but you are one of the three most positive-minded people that I know. One of them is my friend Andrea, who I used to work with, and I still see her every once in a while. The second one is my mom. And the third one is you. You are, it's like everything you see or do, you kind of, no matter what it's like, you spin it into something positive and you just seem like you just love life. Is that pretty much your outlook? That is. Thank you, Scott. That's nice. Okay. Well, let's talk about the uh, events leading up to this, uh, this day, this thing that happened. Skydiving. How many solo jumps had you done before that day? So I had 77 jumps before that day, solo jumps. And then I probably had eight tandem jumps prior to that. 77 to the average person, that seems like, wow, that's a lot of jumps. But in the skydiving world, that's not really, that's kind of still a newbie, right? Oh, yes. That's baby, baby steps, baby steps. I had dreams of having thousands of jumps, but didn't get there yet. I know you really love skydiving, but when you went up that first time, I mean, I've seen videos of people going their first tandem jump or even their first solo jump. How scared were you the first time you jumped out of a plane? I was pretty scared. And I think that every skydiver that I know still, no matter how many jumps they have, there's still that healthy respect for getting up in the plane and, and doing what you're going to do. But my very first tandem... I was scared. I kept asking my tandem instructor, are you sure that we're connected? Are you sure we're connected? But as soon the second we fell out of the airplane, I was in heaven. It was the most exhilarating, beautiful, peaceful, chaotic, serene thing I've ever done. And I instantly fell in love. And in fact, The very first time I did that was at an ultra event, the Skydive Ultra. Uh, My first tandem was in January 2015, where you did a tandem jump and then you ran a 50K. So I did, I think, three tandem jumps, then ran a 50K, and then did two tandem jumps afterwards because I just loved it. It was phenomenal. So you you did five jumps that day? Yes. Had you planned to do that or you just realized after the first one that you loved it so much? Absolutely not. I I just realized it after the first one, how much I loved it. And that feeling of freedom and speed and chaos and beauty is just something is, I just can't describe it. It, It's hard to describe. 
That's I know. I've heard you say before, and I've heard other people say that the people that have not done it, it you just don't understand until you do it. Right. And I have not done it, so I don't understand it. But what you know what I think I find curious though is your use of the word chaos right in the middle of beauty and speed and silence and how does chaos fit into that? So it's interesting because there's so many things happening at the same time. You're you're falling through the sky, which is an unnatural feeling, but you see the curvature of the earth, the beauty. There's a bunch of noise, so it's chaotic and beautiful all at once and. Uh, and it's w- once you, uh, at the time when, once the tandem instructor, um, once we came under canopy, it was just all of that noise stops and it's just quiet and it's beautiful and gosh, I miss it. <laughs> all right. Well, before we get into that day, I've got one more question to ask you, uh, before we talk about that, that one jump, what in general, what is your pain tolerance like? I have a pretty high tolerance for pain, and I think many people will, will tell you that as well. I think anyone who runs ultramarathons has to have at least some high level of pain tolerance, uh, but it's pretty high. All right. So let's talk about that day, the fateful day when this happened. Um, so you were with your friend Elise. And also with you was your daughter, Jessica. Yes. So my daughter, Jessica, was 14 at the time. So she absolutely loved coming with me to the drop zone. And she would love watching the whole process and uh, really liked the vibe. So she she came along that day. And my friend Elise is who I did my very first tandem jump with. Elise and I became licensed skydivers together, took the class together and did many of our jumps together. So we went to the drop zone. It was only our second time at this particular drop zone. So we didn't have that many jumps there. I think we had three or four from the prior weeks. And you don't, you, this is a drop zone that you didn't normally go to. What, what made you decide to go there that day? Uh, you know, I, I can't specifically remember. I think the drop zone, our home drop zone, uh, which was in Zephyr Hill or is in Zephyr Hills, Florida. Um, there was something wrong with the plane or something that day. I don't really, I don't recall, but we decided we wanted to jump. Let's go to, um, to the other drop zone. That's like a half hour, 45 minutes away. And that was in, that's in Plant City, Florida. Right. In Plant City. And were there any weather problems that day? No, it was a beautiful, gosh, it was an October morning, absolutely beautiful fall morning in Florida, a little humid. The sun was just coming up. Um, dew was, you know, on the grass. And anytime you go to a drop zone, there's just this level of excitement, electricity in the air, which I absolutely love. So it was just a beautiful, gorgeous morning. I just got a brand new custom Tony suit, that a skydiving suit. So I was pretty excited to wear that. And we were just, we were ready to, to have a great day of jumps. We planned to get five or six jumps in. It's a, definitely a smaller drop zone than, uh, than Z Hills, but great place to jump. And For the average person, someone that has not skydived before, we don't really know what the process is as far as getting your suit on and gear checks and double checks and all that. Can you take us through that as, as it happened that day and then, and then how everything played out? 
Yeah. So the morning, uh, you know, the jump started out like any other jump. As soon as we got to the drop zone, we turned on our automatic activation devices, our AADs, my altimeter, checked my rig from top to bottom, did one more double check before putting on my Tony suit. Um, And then Elise and I both checked each other's gear. And we always have someone else, because we're new jumpers, someone else at the drop zone would check our gear as well and do a pin check for us. So we get on get on the plane and there were a total of nine people on the plane. There were three tandems, Elise and I, and another jumper by the name of Lee, who asked if he could videotape our jump. And, you know, he was practicing his video skills and we said, absolutely, come on, let's, let's do this. So we get on the plane and there's this level of excitement on a skydiving plane that you just can't described it's pal- it's actually palpable in my opinion the level of excitement but there's also a certain fear and respect that you know what we're about to do is something very serious um as jovial as everyone is and as excited as everyone is safety is everyone's 100% it's priority 100% of the time is safety so you know we get on the plane and a, a new jumper i'm always double checking my gear double checking my pin and we're talking to the guys on the way up who are tandems. And I think it was a bachelor weekend for them. One of the guys was getting married and it's a pretty small plane. And he said, Hey, do you mind if we do a couple barrel rolls? And Elise and I look at each other and our eyes widen real big. And we're like, heck no, let's, that's great. I've never been in a plane that's done a barrel roll before. So <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty small plane. And so they, they talk to the pilot and the pilot says, sure, we can do that. So we, we stand up and we're like a, it's like a, a starfish figure in the plane because it's a pretty small plane. And Lisa and I are standing up with our, you know, our hands on the, on the roof of the plane and our feet spread apart. And we, we did three barrel rolls in the plane, which is really kind of, Neat. It was it was kind of exciting. I did. I got a little dizzy for a second, but it was good. We leveled off and then got to altitude, and you know we the, the green light goes on, the the door goes open in the plane, and you get ready to to jump. And you know before when I think I forgot to mention before we got on the plane. You know, there's a landing pattern that you have to do in order to land after you jump, and there's a, a plan that you have to have that you that you need to have in place. So, Elise and I talked about the landing pattern. We checked the winds, and we asked someone else at the drop zone to double check our landing pattern because we're new jumpers and we want to make sure that our plan is actually would be safe and is the right thing to do. And the idea the idea with a landing pattern is that you want to actually touch down or, or come in against the wind. Is that right? That's right. Okay. That's right. So, and when we're, when we're getting to altitude, we also, Elise and I al- always made the habit of talking about our landing pattern again, just to make sure that, um, that we're both on the same page and we both know what we're doing. And so, uh, the plane, the door goes open and, I love I love the sound of the 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 swishing of the door opening because then the wind gets in the plane and we get our helmets on push the eyesight down and 
we, um, Lee is jumping. He's, he's out on the plane. He's videotaping. Um, so he's, ha- he's letter. He's already left the plane, but he's hanging out on the side, um, waiting for Elise and I and Elise and I jump. And it's funny because you don't really jump out of a plane. You kind of just fall out of it. And it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. You, it, it, it's, it's just fabulous. I don't know how to describe it, but it's exhilarating. It's beautiful. So Elise and I jump and it's a gorgeous morning. The sun had come up and it wasn't too hot yet. And at this particular drop zone, there are pine trees that are very, very tall. And the drop zone that I'm used to jumping at doesn't have pine trees, but I know that any obstacle like a pine tree or a building or anything, um, there's going to be turbulence associated with it. So I'm, I'm just worried initially about the pine trees, but it doesn't, it, it's not over, it hasn't overcome any of my thoughts at all. But I see, so we jump and uh, we're having a great time. And I see, I feel like the wind has shifted a little bit. It just felt different. And I see Elise, she's she's farther away from me than what she usually is. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's kind of weird. Why, you know, why is she way over there? I'm over here and I'm not under canopy yet. And I just, I'm just under canopy at about 5,000 feet, which is usually, I won't pull any lower than that. And I see that she's far away. So I'm like, oh goodness. And I'm looking down and looking around at the ground to see where the, where I'm supposed to land and the trees, I'm worried about hitting the trees. And I remember something in class that we took. If you look at something and you focus on something, you're going to end up going that way. So, so like, I'm not, I don't want to look at my, I'm not going to look at the trees, but I'm still worried about it. I'm worried that if I come down too close to the trees, I'll hit the tree. But it's funny. That's what I was worried about. Um, so I decided not come down lower. So I changed my landing pattern, which was definitely the wrong thing to do. And I thought I would come up a little higher above the trees so I wouldn't hit them. So when I came up higher above the trees, obviously my landing pattern is going to elongate than what it, than what it would have initially. So I, um, it's still a beautiful skydive. I'm not overly concerned. I'm not overly worried. I'm under canopy. It's quiet. And as soon as I come over the trees and, and I realize, and this all happens pretty quickly. And I realized, oh my goodness, I really don't have that much of a runway left. And I'm still coming down, coming down pretty fast. And I know that I still have to, to hang a turn to, to land properly. But as I'm coming in pretty fast, there's a, there's a barn in front of me. And I'm thinking, shoot, if I still come down as fast as I'm coming, I'm going to hit that barn. And if I hit that barn, I'm probably not going to live. <laughs> mm, so that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. And I, and all of this happens in like a split second I said, okay, obviously I want to live and I'm going to turn left.
Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. This episode is made possible by PWC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. As I turned left, when, when, when you're turning left, you're moving your, your left arm. So the canopy, the cells turn, you know, the whole canopy turns and your, your cells turn left. So as I did that, I look up for a split second to check it, to see if my can, what my canopy was doing. And the last three or four cells of my canopy collapse. 
And I knew something bad was going to happen. And and what what happens now is really slow. Like it's a it happened really fast, but in my mind, I can remember every single detail. And it's really bizarre. The first, the absolute first thought and pervading thought of everything else that happened was of my daughter. And like her, her face just was there just in my head. And all I could think of was Jessica, she's here. And I just couldn't stop thinking about her. So as I'm falling to the ground, her face, and I can see her playing on the beach as a baby. It was just really bizarre. Um, as I'm falling. Wow. So this is like one of those things where you're about, you, you're maybe about to die and your life flashes yes, before your eyes. But, but in your case, it was your daughter flashing before yes, your eyes. It wasn't. It's the only thing, the absolute only thought that I had was of her and like pictures. It was weird. It was just bizarre. So as I'm falling to the, at, and this is happening fast, as I'm falling to the ground, um, I can see all of a sudden I have this hyper focus, this myopic view of what I'm going to hit. I could see the individual blades of grass. I could see the dirt, the little specks of dirt on the grass that I was going to hit. And that, that all happens in a second. So I hit the ground and I think I blacked out for a second. And I remember hitting the ground and, and I can, re- I remember hearing a thud, like feeling my body hit the ground. And then I blacked out for a few seconds. And when I opened my eyes, I was like, oh my goodness, I am alive. <laughs> thank, thank the Lord I'm alive. And uh, I couldn't have been happier. I absolutely could not have been happier. And it didn't matter at that point in time if whatever was broken, whatever hurt, whatever needed to be fixed, it didn't matter what it was because I was alive and I would be able to see my daughter again. So I hit the ground and I think Lee had already landed. And I'm, I don't know, someone called 911 and Elise was landing. And all I could think of is my daughter is here. She's 14. I don't, I'm not sure yet that she knows that that was me who had a bad landing. And I don't want her to see me or hear me. I don't want her to hear me in pain because when I hit and once I got my wits about me, all I could do was moan. There was no screaming out in pain. It was just moaning because it was... That's all I could do. I couldn't move my left side. I could wiggle my toes, which I was very happy. I thought, okay, if I can wiggle my toes, that means I'm probably not paralyzed. But I couldn't move the left side of my body without being in excruciating pain. And I had my full-faced skydiving helmet still on. And Lee came running over. And I said, please. All of a sudden, I got a little panic. Like, take this, take this helmet off because... I couldn't see and there was dirt all in it. So he took that off and, and were you face down? Or I was, face, I was face down. So I, I landed, I landed when you take skydiving lessons, they teach you how to land a parachute 
landing fall, I think it's a PLF, and you land, if you ever have to land, and you're not on your feet, you land on your side. So, so I landed on my side, thankfully. Um, and when, after Lee took my helmet off, I don't know how many seconds it was, but my daughter, I, I described to Lee, I said, Lee, my daughter's 14. She has long blonde hair. She's wearing jeans or shorts and a t-shirt or whatever. If you see a young lady come over who looks like that, tell me and I will stop moaning because I don't want her to hear me in pain. I want her to know that, that I'm okay. So he would, he'd say, okay, she's like 50 feet, 20 feet. And I'd, she'd come over and I said, honey, mom's fine. Can you go to the car and get my driver's license? So she would go to the car and I, as soon as she was out of earshot, I would moan again um, because the pain was just excruciating. And she would come back and I'd say, thanks, honey. Now can you go get my sunglasses? <laughs> and she would, she would go to the car um, and she would do that. And then the third time I asked her to go get my, my insurance card because I knew that the paramedics were coming and I reassured her that I was okay, but I knew she was worried. And I knew my friend Elise was worried and Elise was there. And I asked Elise, call Bill, tell him I've had an accident, but I'm alive. And Bill's my husband and just tell him I'll be okay. Uh, And Jessica has the number. So you guys can just call Bill. So they did all that. And I asked Lee, I had my, my brand new rig on. um, And I said, Lee, I don't want them cutting off my rig. Let's see how, you know, if you could get the chest straps and leg straps off, if we can just lift the rig off so they don't cut it. So Lee helped. I couldn't move. So he, he undid the chest strap and um, undid my, the straps around my legs and lifted the rig. So, so the paramedics didn't cut that. So it seemed like it took them forever to get there. It probably didn't, but I was in, I was in a lot of pain. What, where was the pain you were feeling at that time? So it was my back, my leg, like the whole, my whole pelvis area, that whole, from, from my abdomen down was, was hurting. (laughs) And, but the most pain was really in my, my back and my pelvis. And so it it seemed like it took the paramedics a long time to get there. It didn't, I'm sure it didn't. And it was the Hillsborough County paramedics who were just absolutely wonderful. So they came and I can hear them trying to figure out how are they going to roll me over to get me on the board. And I know that when they do that, it's going to be excruciatingly painful. And I try to negotiate with them and say, wait, can't you just like leave me on my stomach and, <laughs> and do it that way? And they're like, no, we really need to turn you over. So, and you knew that even though you were telling, I knew that I knew it. And, you know, when they do that quick body assessment to see what's broken or whatever, I was like, please don't like, don't squish my pelvis or my act. Like, don't do that because that's going to hurt. And he's like, look, I got to. So that was, that was extremely painful. And I think probably the only time I screamed out in pain where my daughter was present was during that 
that time where they did that initial assessment. So they, they kind of flipped me over and I don't remember exactly how, but I can, I remember it being very painful how they flipped me. I just don't, it's like, it's gone. I don't know how they did it, but they flipped me over and I couldn't put my left leg down in a straight position um, because it was too painful. So I asked them to, you know, leave my leg up and put a, they found a pillow and put a pillow and they kept telling me it's going to be bumpy when we get you on the stretcher and try to get you into the ambulance. And, and I was like, just, just give me something for the pain. Like just, I'll, I'll take the bumps, you know, just uh, give me something to take the edge off a little bit. So is, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, when some people, when they get into be so much pain, they just pass out from the pain, mm-mm. but you weren't that fortunate, I guess. No. And I, w- I, I don't ever, I don't know. I want to be aware of everything and, and I want to be in control of at least try to be in control of whatever I could at that point in time, because you're I just helpless. Like I can't, can't move. I can't walk. I can't do anything but I want to try to be in control. And I asked them uh, where they were taking me. And they said the closest trauma center is in um, Lakeland. So we'll be taking you there. And had I thought about it more, I had, I had my wits about me more. I would have asked them to take me to Tampa general only because my family, my house is like an hour and a half away from Lakeland. And you know, it was just a long drive every day for my husband <laughs> to take. But anyhow, I didn't have you my You just weren't thinking. Why weren't you focused on this? <laughs> I wasn't thinking. So they took me to Lakeland and just the paramedics were just fabulous. You know, I can't remember the paramedic's name, but I remember him telling me he had five kids. And, and I can remember the driver apologizing for every little bump in the road. We had to drive over some railroad tracks and I can remember her just apologizing profusely because any, any movement, Scott, like any, any movement, just, it was painful. It was really, really painful. So they gave me as much pain meds as they could. And they couldn't give me a whole lot until I got to the hospital. So we got to Lakeland Memorial and, you know, some of the good things about being a trauma case or whatever you want to call it is that you get like speedy, speedy stuff. Like you, your medical assessments, your triage, your CAT scans, your x-rays, your blood work, all that stuff is like done in a second. So they, they wheel me in and they do like a quick assessment and then immediately take me to CAT scan and x-rays and it, what seems like, and I saw my husband, my husband arrived. Um, so, and I was so grateful that my daughter now who was with me, who, re- who refused to drive in the ambulance, who drove and followed my friend Elise in my car to Lakeland. So now my daughter had my, had her dad, you know, my husband. Um, and that was, that was nice. Uh, she was, he looked pretty freaked out and she, she still doesn't like to talk about it, which is okay. Uh, anyhow, she, I think she was traumatized that day. I think she knew how close things could have, you know, gone differently. Uh, I think had I landed a little bit differently, even just an inch, half an inch different, 
things would have definitely, if I landed on my chest, things could have, you know, I wouldn't be doing a podcast with you today. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And that was your concern at the time is that you didn't want her to be so traumatized. Yes. Yes. But even though you minimize that as much as you could, you know, 14 year old kid, that's not something they should say. I mean, some adults would be traumatized by that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but she's, she's as any kid there, she's resilient and um, she's a fabulous child. So I'm in the, in the, um, the initial assessment and they look at the, the CAT scan and the x-rays and, you know, the doctor said, look, let's, let's hope for a broken hip and not broken pelvis and stuff. Let's just hope for that. And I'm like, okay, we'll hope for that. And by that time they gave me some pretty good drugs. So I was like, I don't That's great. <laughs> I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. Within probably, it seemed like 20 minutes. It, it was very quick. Within an hour of me getting to the hospital, I don't know what I expected, but I can remember feeling that when they read my x-rays and CAT scan and stuff and the doctor said, okay, we're going to take you to a room now. I was like, what do you mean you're going to take me to a room? Like I didn't, I, it's not what I expected. I ex expected I was, would be able to just walk, get up and walk away. And it would just be, you know, it would just be a little boo-boo and that was it. And so they had, uh, they took me to the, um, the trauma floor at Lakeland Memorial which is always an, an interesting place, house of horrors. And I say that only because, you know, there's some pretty bad stuff 
that goes on, bad, bad accidents, car accidents, motorcycle wrecks, people moaning, crying. It was just an interesting time to spend <laughs> a week. A week on the trauma floor is not something that, uh, that I would recommend for anyone um, to do for entertainment. But anyhow, they take me to a room and I'm sharing a room with a woman who got in a motorcycle accident. So they, they dubbed our room, the, the female daredevil room. And, um, so we get, I get to the room and they, they're not sure yet whether I need surgery. And they say, no, you don't need, you know, initially, no, you don't need surgery. And this was a Saturday. And I was like, good. And they said, we'll have someone else read the x-rays, but we think you're good. You just need to to just rest for right now. I'm like, okay. So they gave me pain meds and I was still in a lot of pain and they would come in and try to move parts of, I still couldn't move. I, I still could not move the left side of my body at all. And I was still in a lot of pain. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Let me, I want to clarify this. When you say you couldn't move, you weren't paralyzed, but you're saying you couldn't move because, because the, it would be too painful. Yes, yes, that's okay. right. I couldn't move um, because it was so painful. And I don't know how I made it through that first night because they would come in and they would try the the nursing staff or whoever, I don't know what their titles were, they would try to move me. And I couldn't get out of bed, so I had a bedpan and they would try to like move up my my pelvis to put the bedpan on there. I'm like, no, you guys don't understand, but this is really like, I would scream in pain and I would be sweating. And it was, it was just, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. So the Sunday morning rounds, the, the trauma doctors come and they go to every patient and, and ask them questions and do an assessment. And I said, look, every time if I breathe, if I move just a certain way there's something that's just not right in my like my lower back it's just like it's it's an electrical shock that i'm feeling this is not and it's very very painful so they came back in a little bit later and said okay you're gonna have surgery today we're going to put uh, put your leg in traction so to allow for the swelling to go down or or something i can't remember exactly what they said so that was sunday I had some skydiving and ultra running friends who came to the hospital and um, we were just hanging out and my surgery was scheduled for four o'clock on Sunday. And I was the only, I can remember getting wheeled down to the surgery center and being the only person in there. And it was just probably one of the loneliest times ever. It, it was just me. I was just, it was only me. And I was, you know, and you're th thinking, what's going to happen? What could go wrong? Am I going to walk again? Will I run again? Um, will I be able to do the things I've always loved doing? And I had asked my, the trauma surgeon that before. And he said, I don't know, you know, I can't promise you anything, but you likely won't be able to do all of those things. So the reality of my injury and by the way, the injury I had was I had broke my pelvis in four places, my sacrum and my L4, L5 transverse process. So it was actually, once they had someone else look at the, the x-rays and the CAT scans, it was, I think, more than what they initially thought. So 
Um, I had that surgery on Sunday. They put my leg in traction, which was pretty archaic because when I, when I got back to my room, I'm kind of looking at it and you, you get this steel rod put through your femur right above your kneecap. And then there's like wires that come out of that, that attaches a rope to a sandbag at the end of my bed. So, and, and I kept looking, I'm like, that is really weird. <laughs> like, that's really bizarre. Very archaic. And I kept, every time someone walked into the room because I was the first bed, I'd say, please don't hit that sandbag. <laughs> like, whatever you do, <laughs> do not hit that sandbag. And Because uh, that's a natural human inclination. That, oh, there's a sandbag hanging there. I better punch oh, it. Oh, my right? gosh. I mean, or, or accidentally <laughs> rub up against it when you're getting to the other bed or, or moving something for me. And so I still couldn't move. And I, and I couldn't move until I had another surgery scheduled on Tuesday. So I was, I, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. Some of it I don't remember because of the good, great drugs I had from, from, from being hospitalized. But I just started wondering, am I going to be able to do all the things I'd love? And I thought, you know what? Uh, there's no doubt. There's absolutely no doubt I'll be able to do it. Even if the doctors say, I can't, I'll, I'll definitely overcome this and be able to do it. And then I started wondering, well, you know, what's the, what's the goal for recovery? And the doctor said, look, you're, you're going to be in a wheelchair for a while and then you'll graduate to crutches, uh, a wheelchair to a walker to crutches to one crutch. And then you'll be able to, you know, bear your own body weight. And um, it's going to take quite a while for you to get that done. You'll likely be in the wheelchair for probably six months and then the walker and, a cru and crutches for, you know, months, three or four months after that. And then the single crutch. And so it's going to be, it's going to be a long recovery. So they're telling me this and I'm like, dude, you don't know me. <laughs> that's like, that's not, I, and I'm looking at my husband and he's like, we have this, this communication thing going, this nonverbal communication. Cause he does know he you. He does know me and he knows that I'm just not going to settle for that. And that's just not how I roll. So, you know, you just decide Scott and it's a mental decision that you're going to get through this. You're going to recover and you're going to come back no matter what anyone says. Um, you're going to just come back stronger and much more knowledgeable and better than you were before. And you just, you live life differently. You look at things a lot differently. And, you know, I had my second surgery on Tuesday where they put a seven inch uh, steel screw in my back. It goes through my pelvis and my sacrum, which I, you know, it's still there. So seven inches, if you imagine that, that's pretty big. Yeah, and I'll have to show you the x-ray of it. Uh, I think it's, I think it's posted on my Instagram account from that time. But anyhow, it's interesting because you can, you can just see how big it is. So I had that inserted and my leg taken out of traction. Thank goodness. And the very next day, that Wednesday, they wanted me to get out of bed. And now my husband, we live an hour and a half from Lakeland Memorial Hospital. So he would drop our daughter off at school, run 
an hour and a half to see me at the hospital, stay for like two hours, drive back, pick Jessica up from school, make her dinner, and then come back to the hospital. So it was pretty stressful for him. But on Wednesday, they said, we want you to get out of bed and try to move from the bed to the chair. And it took, I, it probably took me, it seems like 45 minutes to just sit my body up and move my, from sitting up and moving my feet over to the side of the bed. I was sweating like I had just run 50 miles. It was, it was so much work and it was so hard. So I finally was able to just do that move, you know, sit up and move my legs over to the side of the bed. And then they said, okay, let's try to move to the chair. So, you know, they, they help you or they show you ways in which to do that. And once I got in the chair, I, I was exhausted. I was so exhausted. And I just thought to myself, holy cow, this, this is going to be harder than I thought because it just took me what seems like forever to get from my, the hospital bed <laughs> to the chair. And, and I'm exhausted beyond anything I've ever felt before. And how am I going to get back? <laughs> okay. I have to get back into that hospital bed. But anyhow, it's just a, it's just a funny, I don't know, the little, the little tiny things that you take for granted, brushing your teeth with running water, you know, taking showers, all of those things that, that, you don't get to do when you're, you know, bound in a hospital bed. Well, it seems like from what I can see on, you know, what you wrote about this and just talking with you, your general attitude throughout the recovery was determined and optimistic. Yes. How much of a big part of your recovery was your attitude in going into it? So it has to be, in my opinion, it has to be at least 90% because I think, and I know that your body reacts to how your mind thinks and what you perceive your body's going to react to that. So if I thought, my goodness, I'm never going to be able to run again. I'm never going to be able to bike again. I'm never going to be able to climb, do these other things that I love to do. Then, then I'm not going to be able to do that. But if I say, you know what, I'm going to run these, I'm going to be able to do this. I'm going to be able to run bike climb mountains, I'm going to be able to do all of these things, then I'm going to do it. <laughs> and you, you just have to have that, that, that mindset. Otherwise, you're defeating yourself already. You've, you've set yourself up for failure before you've even started. And that just doesn't make any sense. And it's just a lot of negative energy that goes nowhere. Now, that, the, the jump and this whole thing was, was three years ago. Are you fully recovered now? So I was supposed to be in the wheelchair for the six months and then months of other recovery. And the accident happened in October, October 2015. And less than, well, a year after, in November 2016, I ran a 100-mile race and finished. And then... That was at Fort Clinch? Nope, that one was at uh, Save the Daylight. So Save the Daylight, okay. that was November 4th, 2016. Just a month and like two weeks after my, uh, pardon me, a year and two weeks after my accident, 
I said, you know what, you're not going to be able to do this. And, and I did. And then just to make sure that I wasn't dreaming, a month and a half later, I ran a hundred mile, another hundred mile race at Skydive Ultra and finished that as well. So I just wanted to make sure I could do it. I, th- I think you kind of proved that point. Uh, and, you know, n- not to overemphasize this point too much, but also since the accident, you did a little bit of mountain climbing, right? I did. It's not, it was trekking really. And I did a trek to Everest Base Camp. And we're talking, we're talking about Mount Everest. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, you just brushed it off. Oh yeah. I, I went to Everest Base Camp, but I mean, that's just getting to base camp. What's the, what's the altitude on that? Uh, base camp is 17,600 feet, but you have to go up a little to come down to base camp. So it was, I think, 18.6 down to 17.6. And I did that for an organization called Radiating Hope, which helps build oncology or radiation centers in third world countries. So it was, it was more for them, but also I got some satisfaction out of that as well, just to you know, continue to push forward and, and, um, reach goals. So there are, uh, multiple topics here that I could interview <laughs> you about, but actually you went to Everest, uh, that trek was with, uh, our mutual friend, Karen, and I'm hoping to actually have her on the podcast to talk about that. Yes. She had a much more interesting trip than I did. <laughs> it was very interesting. Yes. I saw as you guys posted it on Facebook, it was uh, quite an adventure. So hopefully we'll get her on here at some point and talk about that. You know, in looking back at this, what what could you have done differently to avoid that crash landing or would, have a, would a more experienced skydiver have had the same result or could there be something, could you have done something? You know, accidents happen, but I think it's my own inexperience of jumping. I think a more experienced skydiver would have realized that they didn't have to um, change their landing pattern, that the trees that I was trying to avoid really weren't going to be a danger to me. And that when I realized I was going to either hit the barn and kill myself or stay alive when I made that decision, I really made a sharp left turn to avoid the barn. And that's, that's, obviously what collapsed the side of my, um, my, that left side of my parachute and, you know, just pushed me to the ground. So it's just, I, my inexperience. Have have you ever gone back to that spot where you landed? No, I haven't, but it, you know, I've gone back to, to the drop zone, my home drop zone, which is Zephyr Hills and just to get back out there. And I haven't jumped yet. And I made made a promise to my family that I would wait until our daughter graduated from high school before I jumped again. Now she's graduating this year, but I, you know, I, as much as I love it, I'm not sure I'm, I want to do that. I'm not, I'm just not sure I want to do it again. You got to have your brain go through that whole thought process, right? Yes. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just a part of my life that, that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I sold my equipment and I'm just not not ready yet. I don't know if I ever will be, but I'd rather climb mountains and and try to uh, do other things. You mentioned uh, that Lee, who was in the plane, he he went out first and he videotaped the first part of your your freefall part of that jump. Uh, I'm going to have that video on the website for this uh, episode, so people can watch that if they want to. 
And also, I'm going to have a link to the blog post that you did about, you know, outlining everything that happened that day as well. So if people are interested in, in reading that, they can do that. That'll all be at the website, whatwasthatlike.com. Excellent. Sue, I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you are here to tell the story. And um, I wish you the best in your continuing adventures. Thanks, Scott. And I'll see you out there helping the homeless soon. Sue, it's great to see you again. Oh, it's so good to see you too, Scott. Thank you. I said see you. You know, you and I can see each other as we're doing this, but we're not recording the video, so the listeners don't get to see you, but they get to hear you. When we recorded that podcast conversation, it was like early 2019, and that was about three years after the skydiving accident. And you obviously recovered a lot more quickly than what all the medical people forecasted, and now we're doing this update today, and it's late 2023. It's been eight years. How are you doing today? Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> I have no complaints. I just take every day as it gives. And, I mean, I'm nothing has stopped me from doing and pursuing the things that I love and with passion. So, yeah, I've done a lot of things since our last uh, our last discussion. I can't wait to hear about it. You know, you and I kind of keep up with each other on Facebook a little bit, but it's funny. You started out saying, I have no complaints. I can picture you in a hospital bed in a full body cast and you would still have no complaints. Yeah, there's nothing to complain about. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you, what's happened since then? Okay. So let's see. That was before COVID. So I, my memory is very good before that. <laughs> so I think right before that, I went to Nepal after uh, the skydiving accident, did a, a several things, but went to Nepal, hiked to Everest Base Camp. That was beautiful, fabulous. And I tell you that just because there was a secondary trip to Nepal that I want to talk about. I think in the podcast, we talked about your first one. Okay. Okay. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So we've gone a second time. Um, so the first time that I went to Nepal, there on the trek, there was this beautiful mountain that I was just instantly drawn to, and the mountain's name is Ama de Blom. And Ama de Blom means Mother Mountain or Mother's Necklace, and it's a obviously a huge mountain, and the mountains around it, you'll see Everest and, and Lhotse and a bunch of other mountains, but there was something about that mountain that attracted me, and I had to go back, so... I'll skip forward a couple of years. A few months ago, I went back to Nepal and had to get to Ama de Blom. I had to put my feet on that mountain. And there was something about it, spiritual. There was a need that I had. So I uh, went to Nepal and hiked uh, the trail up to Ama de Blom, which is a similar trail as Everest Base Camp. And then you just kind of you, you split we got to one of the mountaintops and when you go and when you're doing those treks, you stay in tea houses and there's usually no electricity, no heat. You're sleeping in all layers of clothes. It's, it's cold. So we got up to where you could actually see the base of Ama de Blom and it started snowing really, really bad. We got caught in this 
horrible snowstorm and ice storm. And our guide didn't think it was safe for us to move forward because, because of the weather. So I was disappointed. And we, that morning, it had stopped snowing, but we went forward just a little bit, maybe a quarter of a mile, so I could at least be at the base of the mountain. And I bowed to the mountain, kissed the mountain, and I felt, I felt so much better. And I felt like that is, that was what I needed to do. There was, there was an awakening in me that I needed, that needed to happen. And that happened at that moment. So because of that, you don't feel like you need to have to go back and do it again? I don't know. I, I, Nepal has a place in my heart. I, I'll definitely go back. I just may go to a different mountain and do a different route. So we didn't get to climb up Amanda Blom, which was fine. We ended up, it was one of my best friends and I went, we ended up taking a flight to South Nepal and went to, I want to say a safari where there were elephants and just tiger signs, warning signs and rhinoceros and like hippopotamus. There were just, it was beautiful. So uh, it's part of Nepal that I never imagined I would like. We ended up riding elephants. The elephant that we were on, it was a female elephant and she was vibrating, talking to other elephants. And I, I don't know, I had no idea that elephants talked to one another that way. And she was talking to her other sisters. It was just a, it was beautiful. I loved it. You're like a Nepal travel agent trying to sell trips there, oh it sounds gosh. like. It's, it's, not, it's just, I don't know, the people of Nepal, the Nepalese people, there is something so kind and genuine and beautiful and giving about what they do and and just how they treat others. And it's something that it, it endears me to them. And, and I try to be like that. Um, yeah. Why can't we all be that way? Yeah. When your skydiving accident happened, your daughter, Jessica, was just 14 years old. Do you guys talk about that at all sometimes? Or what, what does she remember about that day? So she doesn't like to talk about it, and nor, nor does my husband. I think they were traumatized by it. There was a point where we weren't sure whether I was going to live or not. So no, she, she's not interested. I try to talk to her about it. She's not interested and, and that's okay. She's, she's into therapy and all of those things. And, you know, it was a difficult time for her. Sure. Yeah. And, and she was there when it happened. She was, that's, she was there, which yeah, just kind of amped it up a little bit. How old is she now? What's she doing? She is 22, and she is a first-grade teacher um, in Florida, but she's actually looking to go to nursing school. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Who knows? She's young. She'll figure it out. Have you jumped out of a plane again? I have not jumped out of a plane. I had to promise my family that I wouldn't do that. However, I have been on the plane with skydivers to experience it, and... I definitely want to do it again, Scott. It It is the most beautifully chaotic, peaceful thing ever. It's I love skydiving. I miss the sky. Every day I wake up and I look up at the sky and just have fond memories of that. When I fly places for work or travel, I always look out the window and I'm, and I'm like, oh, if I just had a parachute, <laughs> what I could do. <laughs> You probably don't want to say that out loud. Well, not, not to my husband. He he's he's uh that's probably one of the hardest promises I've ever had to keep 
is saying I, I wouldn't pursue something that I love so much, but I don't think I could do that to them again. Have them that worry that just worry that something could go wrong and I just can't. Yeah, I think we understand that. Since the initial podcast, you and your husband, Bill, have moved. You had a new house built in this amazing place in South Florida. Can you describe that community? Yeah, so we're in a place called Babcock Ranch. It's also also called the Solar City. It's 100% solar. So we have uh, an elementary school, middle school, high school. We have a full gym. We have Publix, which is our our rest our uh, grocery store. We have doctors' offices, clinics, vet clinics. We have um, restaurants, all run by solar, self sustainable. We were actually in the path of Ian last year. Her big hurricane, yeah, yeah. The big hurricane took a an almost direct hit. We're about ten miles offshore near Fort Myers, and uh, we fared well. They built the community to withstand a Cat Five hurricane. Um, the community is built with natural fawn and flora. So the trees that we lost, ironically, were, were not natural or native to Florida. But we pretty much, the community went unscathed. We had, you know, some people lost some screens on their lanai. But we were very thankful and grateful. And there's still a lot of devastation down here that people just don't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We saw it when it was happening. It was, of course, that, that one was, was originally, the path was to come and direct it us yes. up in the Tampa Bay area. I mean, it sounds selfish. I was glad it didn't hit us, but yeah. <laughs> I hate to see all the people it's, that had so much damage, you know. It's funny. I begged our daughter, please, who lives near you, begged her, please come down to Fort Myers area. I don't want you in the path of the hurricane. So she did. And then you don't know, change at the last minute. And, uh, she was like, Mom, thanks. <laughs> now, I visited you at your home when you still lived here in the Tampa area. And at that time, you had one dog, Romeo. <laughs> and since then, you've added a couple more family members. Can you talk about your dogs? And it's an unusual breed. So I have three dogs. I have a Romeo, who's the oldest, who's seven, Juliet, who is three and we have Puck uh, who just turned a year. So they're all three of them are Australian Labradoodles. So that's Cocker, Lab and Poodle. The Romeo and Puck are about 70 pounds and Juliet's a, a little more than 45 pounds. So the boys definitely pick on Juliet, but I'm her I'm I'm her protector, and uh, I love them. They are everything to me. Lots of energy. Yeah, lots of energy. They're just fabulous. I don't. I grew up with cats, and uh, never thought I would be this much of a dog person. But you know, I keep looking now. How many dogs can I have? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a limit? I don't think there's a limit. There is a limit. I think our HOA has a limit. Oh, oh, oh. I think we're at the limit. I think three's the limit. So it's not really the perfect community then, is it? No, it's not. It's not. That's right. <laughs> what is still on your bucket list? I mean, it's hard for me to Im imagine you sitting on the couch watching Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, no, I'm not a sitter at all. So since our last podcast, I've probably completed 
maybe six more hundred mile races. I completed a a 150 mile race and I I'm training right now for a 200 mile race in North Georgia in March. What's the name of that race? It's the cane break 200. Okay. So I definitely have always wanted to do a 200 after I finished my 150. Doesn't everybody? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe (laughs) I, um, I was scheduled to do it last year and in December. So the, the race is in March, but then in December I was skateboarding and uh, dropped into a bowl in, at the skateboard park and broke my leg. So I had to, had to stop training and kind of wait to that healed and it's all healed and I'm back to running again. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think that's what my husband said. He's like, what? <laughs> so, so now do you have to promise to not skateboard anymore? Well, I'm not. I won't skateboard anymore uh, until after my race. Right. Well, if you um, if you ever decide, you know, there's a race here that I crew somebody every year. It's the uh, Pinellas Trail Challenge. If you ever decide to do that, I'd be happy to be your crew. You know what, Scott? That might be next year. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let yeah. me know. Yeah. And you you have your bike, and you. Uh, yeah, I do a bike crew. I pull it pull a trailer with a cooler with ice and water and. Yeah, I've seen that. That's everything you need. Up. Maybe uh, you want to travel across the U.S. on that with me if I <laughs> U.S. <laughs> Are you seriously considering a coast to coast? I would love to, and I keep begging my husband. I'm like, honey, let's just get an RV, and you can stop every ten miles and meet me every ten miles, but. He, he's not interested in that yet. <laughs> we'll see. Kind of boring for the driver, sort of. You know, I would imagine, but uh, he could have the three dogs, the three dogs with it. Oh yeah, a lot of podcast time though. Yes, yes, a lot of hours. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, I have to say, when I did my hundred, I had, I said, okay, that's it. I, there's no way I'm doing a two hundred. So you've got a lot of respect, uh, man. That's going to be pretty awesome when you finish that. Yes, thank you. I'm I'm super excited. It's not going to be easy, but then nothing worth gaining is easy, right? That's right. The harder it is, the bigger the reward at the end. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'll work hard and and dig deep. It's great talking with you again, and I'm sure the listeners are happy to hear what's new with you and. Um, Good luck in all your future bucket list endeavors. (laughs) Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. You can see pictures of Sue, her husband, Bill, and their daughter, Jessica, as well as their three wonderful dogs in the episode notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 160. Here's kind of a weird question. Do you work in a prison? Or do you know someone who works in a prison? More specifically, a prison where the death penalty is being practiced. I'd love to do an episode with the prison employee who is in charge of executions. Here in the U.S., capital punishment is still a legal penalty in 27 states, but not all of the states actually do it. This year, 2023, Florida, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas have all executed prisoners So I think it would be really interesting to hear from the person who handles that process. So if you know someone like that, I'd like to hear from them. We have a podcast review that was left by Chris, and our good friend AI has agreed to read it for us. This is Chris Knighton. I really enjoyed the episode, Tessie Heard a Tree Fall. 
When I started playing this episode, I wasn't sure where it was going, but the narration captivated me and I couldn't stop listening. The host and guest brought on a feeling of nostalgia for me when describing the California Mountain West. And when the guest began to share her story of what happened one night when she was camping, I, as a fellow outdoors and camping lover, couldn't turn it off. This podcast transports you into the world of the guests who tell their stories and makes you think, what if that was me? Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And here we are with the newest listener story. Some of these are long, some are short. This one's kind of short. Listener stories are sent in by, you guessed it, listeners. Usually they're like five to ten minutes long. Nothing fancy, just something that happened to you that you think people might find interesting. You can record it on your phone and email it to me. This week's story is about a child predator, so listen with discretion. Stay safe, and I'll be back here in a week with an all-new episode. Hi, my name is Lexi, and when I was around 15 years old, I'm 20 now, um, I had a friend who was also 15, and she had a boyfriend who was 26 years old. And at the time when I was 15, I honestly, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't realize how wrong it was until I got older. And he would buy me and my friends um, alcohol and weed in order for us to keep quiet about their little vacations they would go on. The bad part about it, well, I mean, the whole thing is bad, but the extra bad part is that he was her older sister's baby daddy's older brother. So they would see each other at, like, family gatherings and stuff. And they would just have to keep it quiet. But the crazy part is, is that they're still together to this day. And it's just crazy to me because when she gets older, she's going to realize that he is a child predator because he will go for somebody that is or was her age when he did that to her. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.